Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. You'll find the notes in the, in the bulletin. You can follow along in that. Luke chapter 10. And as we continue our study of Luke's gospel, we will see Jesus' ministry further develop, further multiply as our Lord heads towards Jerusalem. If you remember, the defining moment in the book thus far has been in Luke chapter 9, verses 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And now the rest of the book, all the way through the end of chapter 19, is that journey. In fact, the largest section in Luke's gospel is the journey to Jerusalem. And so as we move on, we see, say in verse 57, as they were going along the road, going along where? To Jerusalem. And last week we saw the cost to count in following Jesus. As Jesus began heading to Jerusalem, three different people came to him considering following him. And Jesus, who didn't like to hide the difficulty in the small print, put the small print up front and forward and said, if you're going to follow me, there are no guarantees. And if you're going to follow me, there has to be no greater allegiance. If you're going to follow me, you need to set your face as well. Just as Jesus is heading to the cross, so he has called his disciples to pick up their own crosses and follow him. Well, this morning we're going to see what Jesus does with a number of his disciples who have counted that cost, who have that loyalty who have set their faces as well. And as Jesus heads to Jerusalem, he sends 72 ahead of him. Let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. We certainly won't get through it this morning. Pastor Daniel doesn't even think I'll get through my notes this morning, and he may well be right. It may be overly optimistic on my part. But let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, the sending and the return of the 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be upon this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into his streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And it will be more bearable than the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father, or who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Well, this morning we will attempt to cover the sending and the commissioning of the 72. Yes, I know some of your Bibles have 70 instead of 72. There's some textual difference, and it's kind of hard to settle what the right number is. 70 or 72, the manuscripts are kind of evenly divided. My Bible says 72, so I'll work with that. And we'll try to get through that this morning, and then we will study the return. But this is one narrative unit. You can see that. It's uninterrupted. He commissions them. He sends them. They return. But this morning, as we look at this passage, I want you to notice one similar thing. Whether the disciples receive a welcome in the town they go to, whether their message is received, or whether it is rejected, in both instances, they announce that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And that's really the theme, I think, of this section, as King Jesus sends out his emissaries, that the kingdom is drawing near in one fashion or another, as Jesus sends out the 72. Well, let's begin our study by looking first at the first 11 verses. Jesus commissions and sends out the 72. Jesus commissions and sends out the 72. And I want to notice four things in this passage. First, the Lord sends workers to his Father's field. The Lord sends workers to his Father's field. It's interesting, the narrator has begun calling Jesus the Lord. Remember, as I said, Luke was arguing who Jesus was. And we reached that crescendo in chapter 9 where the disciples, who is this? Herod, who is this? Jesus, who do you say that I am? And the answer returns, confident and certain. You are the Christ of God. And then Jesus goes up on a mountaintop, God the Father himself testifying to who he is. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We learn that he is the messianic king. He is the prophet like Moses, greater than Moses, to whom the people must listen. And he is also the suffering servant. And that theme is introduced as well. Luke clearly thinks he's established Jesus' identity sufficiently. And so here in verse 1, the narrator begins to address him as the Lord. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. After what? After the encounter on the road with the three would-be followers of Jesus. In other words, Luke is connecting this narrative with what came before. He's telling us that first, after Jesus set his face, he went along the road. He had these three encounters that we looked at last week. And now this happens. I think here's the point. These 72 who he is sending are 72 who have counted the cost, who have forsaken everything who have no greater loyalty, and who have set their face in following Jesus. We're going to see some of that application even as he gives them instructions here. But the Lord sends workers to his Father's field. Now the ESV doesn't make this as obvious, but what it says here, he sent them ahead of him, is literally he sent them ahead of his face. Which is significant because as you remember back in verse 51, what is the pivotal event in Luke's gospel? Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. This is also connects these 72 with the ministry of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the angel, speaking of the ministry of John, says that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then in chapter 7, verse 27, Jesus, speaking of John, says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. So John had a ministry. It was a ministry of preparation. He was preparing the people for the Messiah, their king, who is coming right behind him. 
John did that through a ministry of calling the people to repentance. Well, John has been imprisoned and beheaded at this point. And so Jesus sends out 72 before his face, linking that language. And what are they doing? They're preparing the people for Jesus' arrival. They're going ahead of him. They're the advance team. So Jesus' meandering route to Jerusalem is going to be um, prepared for by these 72 disciples. They're preparing the people for Jesus. Not only this, but he sends them in pairs. He sends them two by two. I think there's at least two reasons for this. One, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10, makes it clear that there is a strength that comes in the plurality. It says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. There's also another reason he sends them out two by two. Because of the significance of their ministry and the judgment that will befall the cities. Remember this, they enter the town and it's pass-fail. Either the town receives them and they heal the sick in that town, or the town does not receive them and they wipe the dust off their shoes. It's pass-fail, town by town. And as Jesus goes on to pronounce the woes to those towns who would reject them, they're pretty significant and extreme. And so I think Jesus sends them out two by two additionally to, to, to meet the, the measure of evidence required for such a judgment. In Deuteronomy 19, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Jesus is sending out groups of witnesses. So these verdicts, these judgments that will befall these towns are in keeping with the biblical standard of evidence and jurisprudence. And he sends them to the harvest. Now, this is a rich biblical imagery for, for evangelism and for missions. <clears throat> he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, Jesus here co-ops an Old Testament metaphor. Usually this notion of harvest in the Old Testament is connected with the day of the Lord and judgment. And yet here and other places in the Gospels, Jesus flips it around. The harvest is seen as this. The world is a field. And in that field, there's wheat and tares. And, and the harvest is the ministry of going out and bringing in that good grain, going out and bringing in that good seed. Specifically, it's, it's a ministry of evangelism. And so as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, he sends them out into his father's field. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In John 4, 34-36, Jesus, using the same analogy, says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit to eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. And additionally, the Apostle Paul, speaking of his ministry at Corinth and Apollos' ministry at Corinth, is develops even further isn't simply evangelism in Jesus case that that is what this is but it's even ministry in the church the apostle Paul says this to the church at Corinth I planted Apollos watered but God gave the growth so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor for we are God's fellow workers you are God's field Here's that metaphor. He's sending them out. But even in sending them out, he reminds them of their insufficiency. He reminds them of their insufficiency. There's 72 of them. Jesus went from one lone prophet and teacher to the beginning of chapter 9. He commissioned the 12 to go out. Now we're up to 13. And now, in addition to those 13, we've got 72 others going out. I mean, Jesus' ministry is exponentially exploding and even as it's growing so rapidly, it is not sufficient to keep up with the need. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
understand that God means to save many, many souls. I mean, here is Jesus exponentially growing his ministry. And in that context, we still don't have nearly enough. Now, praise the Lord. We have some faithful missionaries in our midst today. And praise the Lord for the missionaries who are out there. We don't have nearly enough. And praise the Lord for those of you who share your faith in the work, in the home, and in your neighborhoods. And yet the, the call is still for prayer. He sends them out relying on prayer. Relying on prayer. They are insufficient for the task. We are insufficient for the task. And even as we go, and even as we open our mouths, and even as we speak the message of life to others, we need to do it relying on the Lord, recognizing our insufficiency. Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? And the Apostle Paul recognizes his insufficiency. Another thing that's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the overwhelming majority of prayers associated with missions and evangelism in Scripture are not directed to those who would hear, but to those who would speak. There's nothing wrong in praying that God would save a certain people group. But the biblical pattern we receive again and again and again is praying for the workers, praying for the ministers, praying for the missionaries and the evangelists. Even the Apostle Paul closes Ephesians with this, asking the Ephesian church that they would make supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So there's, not, there's nothing wrong in praying that God would save your neighbor. There's nothing wrong in praying that God would save um, the people of a certain country or people group. But make sure you're praying for the servants. Make sure you're praying for our missionaries. Make sure you're praying, Lord, raise up a people to speak the words of life. Of course, that puts more of the responsibility back on ourselves because after all, couldn't we, perchance, speak the words of life? So the Lord sends workers to his father's field. He sends them to go before his face. He sends them to go in pairs. He sends them to harvest. He sends them relying on prayer. This is a mission of opportunity. This is a mission of opportunity. He sees the harvest is ready, it's plentiful. This is the right time. He's heading to Jerusalem, and so he sends them out. Next, verses 3 to 4, we see the good shepherd sends his flock into peril. The good shepherd sends his flock into peril. He switches the metaphor from agricultural to one of sheep and wolves. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Good shepherd sends his flock into peril. And he just warns them they've got to be willing to forsake everything, that they, the birds have nests, that the foxes have holes. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And as he sends them out, he sends them out without bags of money, without extra clothes, without extra sandals. And he sends them into danger. And again, Jesus is right up front. He doesn't hide the small print. He's, he's right up front and honest about this. He's sending them out into a countryside where people have already tried to kill Jesus. Remember in his hometown? John the Baptist has already been arrested and executed. There is opposition, and yet he sends them out. But he's not sending them out to be devoured and destroyed. You'll notice in our passage we read, they all return. And he promises his protection, but he's also making it clear there is a real danger. There is a real threat. In the service of the Lord, in the service of the gospel, we, we will be opposed. We will be Vulnerable. I mean, that's really the picture. A sheep is vulnerable. A sheep doesn't have any way of fighting back against a wolf. Unless the sheep has an active and sufficient shepherd, the sheep will be devoured. But if the sheep has a powerful and effective shepherd, the, the sheep will be safe. Jesus, as that shepherd, sends them out and warns them. He's already been rejected in that Samaritan village. And as he sends them out, he warns them they too will face rejection. They too will have 
nights sleeping in the wilderness or on the road. They will be like lambs before wolves. And they must learn to depend upon him only. To depend upon him only. These instructions, both here and earlier in chapter 9, really seem to be unique in, in missions philosophy for these specific commissionings. Um, the Apostle Paul, as he, as he conducts missions, he takes along an entourage, he takes along, he gathers, raises support. I think, I think what's going on here is that Jesus, in this particular situation, wants to highlight, wants to emphasize his disciples need to rely on him. That when they succeed, where there is success, it's because he has been faithful to uphold them. Look what they're forbidden from carrying, no, no money bag. So if they get rejected, they can't afford an inn or a room. No knapsack, no extra pair of sandals. Very, very similar, in fact, to the instructions he gave to the disciples in chapter 9. Verse 3, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. He's sending them out, having just told them. There's no guarantees. You have to forsake everything. And he sends them out bare. He sends them out vulnerable. If people won't show hospitality to them, they won't eat. If people don't show hospitality to them, they will sleep in the open. And yet he's still the good shepherd. He's going to provide for them. They will all return rejoicing. He will prove himself trustworthy to them just as he is trustworthy to us. This is sometimes a lesson the Lord wants to teach us. The Apostle Paul in, in Philippians says that he has learned how to trust God in this way. Listen to Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It does not mean you can run a race. It doesn't mean you can jump a high wall. It means you can have a good and thankful attitude with much or with nothing. I can endure, thankfully, with a good attitude, anything in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He can, he can be hungry and without shelter. He can, have, he can have food and clothing and be provided for, and he can learn to be content. In any and every situation, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Jesus is teaching his disciples that as well. But also notice that they must act with urgency. They must act with urgency. That, that's the purpose of not greeting anyone on the road, and that would run the risk of almost being rude. In this culture, fellowship and meeting people and greeting people was a huge part of life. And here, they're to go ahead of him, not greeting people on the roads. They're going to get into a town, and, and contrary to what happens elsewhere in the New Testament, th there is a pass-fail evaluation of that town. Either they are received or they're not received, and then they move on to the next town. This is a mission of urgency. The Lord is coming. The Lord is behind them, moving towards Jerusalem. There's an urgency to their mission. There's an urgency that, that people would hear the gospel, that, that people might hear the good news of Christ's death, burial and resurrection, that they might come to life, believe and be saved. But there's also an urgency for the town. We've already seen this, haven't we? When the Samaritan village rejected Jesus, John and his brother wanted to call down fire. They didn't like that so much. And Jesus said that type of judgment was not yet. Sort of that realized eschatology was not now. But there was a judgment nevertheless. There was a judgment from Jesus nevertheless. Look at that in verse 56 of chapter 9. They went on to another village. They heard the word of God. They were in the presence of the one who is God, the, the very word of God, and they rejected him. And Jesus honored that rejection and tragically moved on. They wouldn't have to hear this message that they didn't want to hear anymore. They wouldn't have to be provoked by this man who was going to Jerusalem, not Samaria. They moved on. The same thing is evident in their ministry here. They enter the town. 
The town receives them. Wonderful. The town does not receive them. They wipe the dust from their feet and they move on. There is an urgency to this mission. Tragic urgency for those who reject. So we've seen the Lord sends workers to his father's field. The good shepherd sends his flock into peril. Next, we see Jesus sends his ambassadors to preach peace. Jesus sends his ambassadors to preach peace. And here we get instructions for what is to happen if they're received. And so we pick it up in verse 5 through 9. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So what are their instructions for ministry here? First, They must greet each household in peace. Now, this is really the hallmark of their message. Now, we read peace. I don't think we get the the gravity of what is meant by peace. At its fundamental level, the gospel message is a message of peace. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we are having peace with God. We're going to see at the end of this passage that these people speak for Jesus, and Jesus speaks for God the Father. So when his emissaries and ambassadors arrive and then pronounce peace be on you. It's God's offer of peace that they are representing. Consequently, it's God's offer of peace that they can receive or reject. God, through these 72, is offering peace to the men and women of these towns. They're going to. And so they enter, they first go to the house, and say, peace be on this house. And it says, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. Meaning, simply, if there is someone receiving God's peace, someone whom this peace is good and right and fitting, this someone who receives this peace, that peace will rest upon him. It really will be peace indeed. In other words, they're not empty, offering simple, empty words. But where this message is received, peace will be received. Or to put it another way, the message of forgiveness and reconciliation they preach is the real deal, effective. And the son of peace is there, their peace that they offer will rest on him. Now I've used the term ambassadors here because as we pick up the kingdom language, which we'll pick up in this paragraph, that's really what's going on. I mean, if you look all the way down to verse 16, Jesus makes this connection clear. The one who hears you hears me. They are Christ's ambassadors. The message they preach is not their own. It is Christ's. Consequently, how they are received is how Christ is received. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul makes this same point as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Pick it up in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Even as these 72 represent Christ and how they are treated and received is how Christ is treated and received. So this holds true even for us. Do you realize that when you share the good news of the gospel in faith to your neighbor, God himself is speaking through you. That's what this says. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I just want to pause here this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know 
forgiveness and salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, if you've not turned from your sin to Him in faith, if you've not trusted on Him, looked to Him, God is offering, extending you an offer of peace this very morning as well. And God would use a weak clay pot like me to plead Himself with you to be reconciled with Christ. The offer is free and present as we even see in our passage this morning. May not always be present in there. Today is the day of salvation. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. That there, there is the, the, the cross explained in its simplest terms. On the cross, Jesus, the one who knew no sin, received our sin, became legally guilty of sin, so that we might receive the benefits of His righteous life. C.S. Lewis called that the great exchange. He took our guilt, our sin, and the punishment, and he offers us his righteousness. God is offering peace. God is offering peace. Okay, back to, to Luke chapter 10. They must greet each household in peace, and they must receive support with grace. They must receive support with grace. This is, this is an amazing passage, probably for reasons you're not aware. This passage here is the only verse directly quoted in the New Testament by the New Testament. Luke 9, verse, um, where is it? Verse 7 is the only New Testament passage directly quoted by the New Testament. And in this passage, and we'll look at that in a moment, what, what, what Jesus is teaching his followers is how to be good and gracious guests, how to receive support with grace. There's two errors to avoid. The one error is being too proud to receive help, being too good to receive help. The other is so much wanting help that you sort of jump around. If you can get in a better house, then you can get even a better house, and this house has a pool, and sort of hop around. No, but this even happens in, in ministry in, in, in America as pastors jump to bigger churches and bigger churches. And I'm not saying that's always wrong, but you look at the average tenure of a pastor at a church is under five years. Something's wrong. And what Jesus says to them on the one hand is this. Remain in the same house. You're not jumping around. You're not, you're not playing leapfrog. Eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer, deserves his wages. On the one hand, don't, don't pull position and leapfrog around looking for a better deal and a better situation. Be a good host. I mean, think of the insult. Somebody takes you in. They show hospitality to you and they open their table and their fellowship to you and they support you. And then you hear there's a nicer deal. And so you leave and you, what does that communicate? No. Jesus wants them to be good guests. But on the other end, he tells them, don't, don't feel bad about this. This could be a challenge for us as well because America is built on this self-made American Adam. I'm the captain of my own fate. I don't need help from anyone. And Jesus says here, no, the laborer deserves his wages. In fact, the apostle Paul quotes this in 1 Timothy 5.18. That's, that's where Paul quotes this. He quotes Luke not 10 right alongside of Deuteronomy. I mean, it's remarkable. With one introductory formula. For the scripture says, and he says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. There's Deuteronomy. And the laborer deserves his wages. And Paul quotes that in reference to making sure that the churches pay well and take care of their pastors and elders. This is a principle that endures. Those who, who make their work the gospel receive that as well. Galatians 6, 5, those who are taught the word should share all good things with those who receive it. On the one hand, we, we, we don't, those of us who are in vocational ministry, don't need to feel bad about the support we receive. On the other hand, we are warned against jumping to better situations and better situations. They're to remain in the same house. They're to eat whatever they're served. They're not to go from house to house. When they enter a town, next, they are empowered by him to heal the sick. They're empowered by him to heal the sick. Now, some people have made a big contrast between this commissioning and the commissioning of the Twelve, because in the commissioning of the Twelve, Jesus explicitly gives them power and authority over demons and power to heal. If you look back at 9, 
verse 1 of Luke, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, some people think, oh, this is a different deal because it doesn't explicitly say that. I tend to think, rather, that having said that already in 9, Luke, Luke's building upon and assuming that. Why? Because here, clearly implied, is that these 72 have the power to heal. And when they return, we learn they also have the power and authority over demons. So I don't see any disjunct or disconnect. I think Luke's just for economy of words building upon this. It's assuming that. Whether or not Luke records Jesus explicitly giving them that authority, they have that authority. They exercise that authority. Their ministry appears to be indistinguishable from that of the twelve. They're empowered to heal the sick. So what happens when they go into a town and they're received? They announce peace. And then to indicate the presence of the kingdom, the signs that accompany the kingdom, that verify the kingdom, are being worked through them. Remember, that's why Jesus was healing. He, he healed out of compassion, but Jesus did not heal everyone on earth. He didn't even heal everyone in Israel. Why did Jesus heal? Go, go back to Luke chapter 4. Jesus explains it. The purpose of Jesus' miracles was first and foremost to validate and verify his identity, his authority, and his message. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Then he quotes Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And that, that's the word in Hebrew for Messiah or Greek, Christ. Anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, their covering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when John the Baptist is imprisoned and questioning and he sends his messengers to Jesus, Jesus points to those very miracles. Yes, I am the Messiah. The, the works that he does verify his identity. So yes, Jesus heals out of compassion. We've seen that. But first and foremost, the, the purpose of these miracles is to validate and confirm the message. And these 72 are likewise empowered to confirm their message. And it's a little foretaste of the kingdom. Because as they heal, what are they to say? They're to say that the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. That's the message. What does that phrase mean, the kingdom of God? It's been used a lot in Luke thus far, and in this section on the road to Jerusalem, it's going to be used a bunch more. What is meant by that? Well, I want to look at just one or two passages briefly that I think help us understand what, what Jesus means by this. Turn to Luke 11, verse 20. And here Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, and he is refuting his detractors. He says this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So this notion of power and spiritual authority is connected with the kingdom. Turn to chapter 13. Verses 18-21. through Luke 13, 18 to 21. And Jesus tells a parable of what the kingdom is like. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a little leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. What's the point here? The kingdom is growing. The kingdom is expanding. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day were fixated on the realized, full-grown kingdom. If I could use the analogy of the mustard seed, they, they were focused on what the kingdom would look like when it was full-grown, when all the birds of the air were nested in it. Or in other words, the Psalm 2 kingdom, where the Messiah rules from sea to shining sea with a rod of iron, uncontested, absolutely. And that will come. That will come. There's a very real sense in which the kingdom is still present um, some, some people speak of a now, not yet. Like, is the kingdom here? Sort of. Not like it will be. Not like it will be. But go on to chapter 17 of Luke. 
We've got to understand this because this is the key of the message, both to those who receive and those who do not receive, to those who believe and to those who reject. They're told the kingdom is drawn near. Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What's Jesus saying? He, as king, is the heart and center of the kingdom. The king is present. And when the king is present, his kingdom is present. How is it present? It's present in that he has subjects who are obeying him. I mean, that's what a kingdom is made up of. You've got a monarch, a kingdom needs a king. kingdom needs subjects. And the kingdom needs a growing, needs a sphere of land or rule. That, that's, that's what Jesus is speaking to. So, so as he speaks to these towns, how is the kingdom drawn near? Well, the king is drawing near, and his subjects are drawing near. And as this town receives Jesus' offer of peace, and as they receive this message, they get enfolded into that kingdom. In fact, listen to Colossians 1.13, describing our salvation. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, you have been transferred into Jesus' kingdom. It's now and it's not yet. They are to announce the kingdom of God has come near to you. This, this, the best metaphor I can think of is this, for this kingdom notion. Imagine a rebellious city within a, within a nation, an open, defiant rebellion to the rightful monarch and ruler, uh, worthy of death and destruction. And an army is coming to siege and destroy this city because the king will ultimately rule. But in advance of that army are messengers offering, if, if you will lay down your arms, if you will renounce your treason, if you will swear loyalty, you can be pardoned and forgiven. And that advanced team as ambassadors represents the king and his kingdom. Don't they? The kingdom is drawn near. And those offers of forgiveness, free, free offers of forgiveness, the kingdom is drawn near. But as we'll see in the Verses 10 to 11. I do think Daniel is right. That's all we'll get to this morning. There's another sense in which the kingdom draws near because when those initial ambassadors are rejected, the main army behind them will draw near as well. Jesus sends his ambassadors to preach judgment. Well, you notice they have two messages. They have a message of peace. That's what they lead with. They offer peace. Peace be on you. God is offering you peace. But when they're rejected, they still have something to say. Verses 10 and 11. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has come near. And we've already seen Jesus be rejected. Jesus' disciples will also face rejection. There will be towns that will reject him. And apparently next week we'll look at Jesus speak of some of those towns that have rejected him. What happens when, when they reject God? When his disciples are rejected, they are to announce God's own rejection. When rejected, they are to announce God's rejection. These people reject Christ they are rejecting his father by rejecting his ambassadors. And they are to in turn announce that God has rejected them. See, it's a fearful thing to hear the message, to hear the word of the gospel because what one does with that then escalates consequences. On the one hand, consequences of forgiveness and peace and life and light and fellowship with God. On the other hand, you reject that message. Your punishment will be worse than that of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Rejected, 
they announce God's rejection, which is still a mercy that may seem severe, that may seem kind of harsh, to go out publicly in the middle of the city streets and to wipe the dust off their feet and to announce to them. That's the picture. There's a separation between us, and now we regard you as unclean. I want to get your dirty, even your dust off of me. Representing that is how God feels about them. That may seem harsh, that may seem unloving, but, but to those who are unrepentant, to those who will not believe, the kindest thing you can do is warn them of where they truly stand. That The response isn't, well, I hope you change your mind. God still loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, your rejection of him, he will reject you. And that is still a kindness and a mercy. And then they are to announce that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. I said there's an urgency to their message. You see, these people aren't given months and years to make up their mind. Christ sends his ambassadors. His word is proclaimed. His peace is announced. And then, pass, fail, this town will receive them or reject them. Rightly did Isaiah say in chapter 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, there's the kingdom arrives with the ambassadors who announce peace, but there's also another picture of the kingdom. Turn, turn to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. This, of course, is the, the picture of the kingdom that his disciples and his countrymen would be most familiar with, what they were expecting. And they stumbled over the fact that Jesus did not bring this kingdom in his first coming, but Jesus in his second coming most certainly will. And for those who reject the Lord, the kingdom is still drawing near. For some it draws near in mercy and forgiveness, and others it draws near like a gathering army of overwhelming force draws near. Psalm 2 passage quoted by the early New Testament church in Acts 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So they don't want his rule. Let's throw off his rule. Let's reject his rule. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Isn't that what the, the father just said on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, that happens sometimes too when the kingdom draws near. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. You perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now jump, jump to Revelation 19, and we'll draw our time to a close here. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day the Lord can be called upon. Today, that offer of forgiveness is extended, that offer of peace, free. But the kingdom is drawing near regardless. Every day, the return of the Lord draws nearer. And there will come a day when the kingdom draws near in a very different way. And notice how Revelation 19 picks up that language of Psalm 2. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Verse 11. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies 
of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, the king draws near to planet Earth here with his ambassadors and with his servants. The kingdom draws near, but in a very different sense and for a very different purpose. Jesus sends out the 72 to offer forgiveness. And where that forgiveness is received, Jesus' kingdom advances and it draws near. But make no mistake, where that offer is rejected, the kingdom is still drawing near. This king and this army is drawing near. These are the options we have. And there's a same urgency today as there was then. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And pray for those. Pray for those who are out to harvest and pray that the Lord will raise up more to send to the fields to harvest and pray that the Lord might give you the courage to open your mouth like Paul said and speak as you ought to speak. You have the words of life. Speak them to your neighbors. Speak them to your family. Speak them to your co-workers. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the king and we are your subjects. Oh Lord, would that we, would that we might be used by you in the advancement of your kingdom that we might recognize that we are your ambassadors, that you have entrusted to us the word of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. You might use us that you yourself might make your appeal through us, imploring others, do not perish. Be reconciled to God in Christ. Lord God, as those who have been reconciled, as those who have received your peace and upon whom your peace rests, we rejoice. Help us to be faithful. Help us to have eyes that see the harvest and the need and the urgency. Lord God, help us to be faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen.